0: Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. The media plays a big role in what we at Hiraith do, and the strength of the Welsh civic polity is a long-running theme through our pods. It was one of the reasons we decided to do this in the first place, to provide a bit more depth and coverage to what we felt was missing. But tonight we are talking to two of Wales' foremost journalists. They have been the Welsh faces and voices on the wider UK stage for many years. Sarah Dickens was for two decades a BBC correspondent on the UK economy and is now a sustainable economics advisor. Hello Sarah. Hi. And Mark Hutchings, who also recently hung up his microphone for the Beeb after 40 years of writing, reporting and presenting news in Wales. Hello Mark.
1: Hi there, hi. Thank you both for joining us. Mr Davis, take us away. Uh, Good evening both. I'm a big fan, Sarah. I really remember watching you with Adrian Childs on Working Lunch several years ago, more than both of us care to remember, I imagine, but do miss that programme. And Mark, you've been the Welsh voice on my default channel, which is Radio 5, for many years, putting that Welsh picture on the UK nation, so it's a really is a pleasure. Before we go into some of the detailed questions that we have for you both, I just thought it'd be interesting if you could both basically introduce yourself and how you found yourself in the media and the journey you've been on. Sarah, can you tell us about your experiences?
2: Well, how I actually joined in the very first place. I became that uh, young journalist with the sharpened pencil. But it was a funny one, really, and it wasn't an intention. But uh, I studied politics, economics and sociology at university. And uh, straight afterwards, all my friends got clever jobs and moved to London. And I stayed in Exeter. I uh, did my degree. And there was a new radio station starting up at the time set up by, in fact, a Welshman called Mike Joseph, Mike, also known as Mike Engelhart, who had worked for, on um, some of the really investigative documentaries on ITV. And he wanted to basically show that you could have commercial radio that was speech-based. I had a job as a barmaid down the road. I was getting a bit bored in my bed, sitting in the bar, barmaid job, to be honest, and uh, went along there just to help out, really, for a bit of company and a bit of bit of intellectual rigour and discussion, really, to be honest. And I got the journalism bug there. It was just as the Falklands War began. And within a couple of weeks, um, they gave me a job doing a benefit rights slot. For free, of course, being commercial radio then. And that's where my journalism began. And I suppose the thing is, is that for me, it's always been about the people. It's always been about storytelling. And when I was economics correspondent, I almost didn't like the title because it feels very academic. It feels quite cold, you know. Economic. You wouldn't say, "Oh, I love economics," would you? But the trouble is, I do. But in terms of how it affects people, so that's what got me going in the beginning. Very much looking at why people weren't claiming benefits that they were entitled to, what was difficult about the system helping those people, and quite frankly. That's what I was doing, I hope, on my last day at the BBC, and that's what I'm trying to do now. So that's, that's the thing for me, mean, really.
1: That's great. Mark, what, what brought you in with the journalism bug? Uh, well, my
3: career started with a funeral, actually. Uh, so it started with a finish, I suppose, in that I did some work experience at the Free Press uh, weekly newspaper in Botterpool, which is uh, which is still going. And um, the first job I was given was to go along to a funeral to get the names of all the mourners. Uh, and there was sort of method in this like madness in that the thinking was if your name was written down in the paper as one of the mourners, you'd buy the paper. So it would uh, boost the circulation. So uh, I went along to this church uh, in pool and uh either Jenkins or whoever whoever it was, and I had to stand outside the exit and write down the names of uh, every mourner, and there was Mr. R.P. Jones representing Mrs. C.E. Jones and and the like, and after about five minutes, I noticed there was another exit that I hadn't spotted, and I'd missed a big chunk of the mourners. But in some respects, I think, I mean, as, as absurd as it seemed at the time, it was actually a remarkably good introduction to journalism. And and much of what I learned on that very first day, um, I still deploy in that it's going up to complete strangers. Uh, approaching them, engaging with them, getting their confidence and uh, whatever stories I've done uh, in the intervening period, I think that's sort of held true and in some respects I think it's tougher for a younger generation of journalists now because how much of our contact now is remote by WhatsApp or texting and messaging we don't really go up to complete strangers and um, embarrass ourselves by saying hello, I'm so and so from such and such we don't have that practice of, of speaking to people because we can you know, it's very convenient. We can easily make contact her via WhatsApp. In the same way, how many of us now stop and ask for directions from someone we get on our Google Maps or whatever app we're using. So I think there's there's that extra challenge for younger journalists now like, to get over that threshold of going up to complete strangers. Um, I then went on to the Western Mail train, and the Western Mail stayed there four and a half years or so. Worked, uh, one of the first stories I worked on, as I think Sarah did, was the miners' strike, which seems like an eon ago now. Um, went into local radio equally, uh, into GWR, then Red Dragon, um, into BBC Wales, and then I spent a big chunk of my career as you say, for Five Live and also for network television and radio, telling the UK and the wider world about what was happening in Wales.
0: So you've both you know, recently hung up your BBC microphones, so maybe you can be a little bit more candid than you have been in the past. But what do you think of the state of the UK media today? Do you think we're in a good place? I haven't entirely
3: hung up my microphone so um i will be as candid as i as i can <laughs> be um in that i am still aiming to, to work as a freelance journalist but uh, i will um uh, uh, i will use the um techniques that i've used over the years in speaking to presenters and uh, answering the question as best i can and that actually completely landed myself in it i, I mean in terms of the state of the of the uk uh, media i mean clearly the last few years have seen huge changes in the way we are broadcasting and how we connect with uh, audiences, particularly in, in broadcasting but also in, in the old-fashioned uh, print industry. Much of it now is digitally led uh, uh, of course and I, I think the challenge is is to reach those audiences without losing the core audiences, the people that do still watch Wales well today, do still uh, listen in old-fashioned, term, old-fashioned terms uh, to the radio. So I think there are enormous challenges um particularly for the bbc i think that all this the benefits and the burdens of of the license fee in, in in justifying that and reaching those audiences and i think another thing that i've noticed has changed in recent years i don't know whether sarah has experienced this too is that people feel very willing and able to say what they think about you now um via social media uh, You used to get that bit i refer to the minor strike when i was working for the western mail you get a bit of jip from the miners on the picket line because you were seen as working for the old coal owner's paper You'd get a bit of that but but it was fine. Now on social media, people can throw all sorts of things at you and then that does translate a bit I think. Uh, when I was in Westminster a few years ago during the Brexit debate, one man, I went up to one man and said, hello, I'm from the BBC and he said, F off, you treacherous scum. Uh, and I thought, well, we're really going to just mess. But people do now feel more able, I think, to chuck a whole load of things at you and that's just something you have to challenge when necessary and otherwise at the other time just let it bounce off you
0: building on mark well, Mark's on yeah. what mark has said do you think that we are seeing now a development of a more partisan media or maybe people sort of repeat, sort of retreating to the media they feel most comfortable with rather than necessarily trying to find something objective in the middle
2: well, i think it's much more diverse isn't it and what we mean by media and where we get our news is from such a, a wide area now it's not just the papers on the various television channels have obviously changed but but also you know so many people only get their news from twitter or they only you know not necessarily from what other people are saying on twitter but articles on twitter in a way there's a massive opportunity in that and on LinkedIn as well because i don't know about you but i find myself reading you know all sorts of stuff from around the world that i wouldn't have read or even knew about the organizations or or the documents before because of twitters and linkedins and things like that but at the same time yes we know that if you're not careful you can get into personal echo chambers and you know i think we probably all know of examples of people who they we've seen do that recently but i thought it was a, a really good point that mark was making about how as journalists we kind of go up and chat to people and now perhaps you get um more, more, sort of stress and more hassle. Let's say, especially if you're doing more contentious issues like, for instance, Brexit. But at the same time, I think it's much harder to get people to appear on the telly. So before, you could say, "Oh, you'd be on Wales Today telling me which is your favourite vegetables or whatever, or what you think of whatever." Whereas now, because people can actually broadcast themselves all the time, they don't need us. I think the traditional standing on the corner vox pops got harder. I don't know if you found that, Mark, or whether. I lost the touch.
3: Oh, you never lost your touch, Sarah. Um, Yes, I mean, I think they probably have become uh, more difficult because, yes, people can put themselves on their own uh, platforms. The other challenge, I think, is when you're interviewing people now, you have to um, advise them that what you are, what would normally have gone traditionally just say on Wales Today could end up, via social media, via the internet, anywhere and everywhere. And I think that is, I find that a challenge when you're trying to get someone to sort of open their hearts to you or talk about what's quite a difficult subject. And then you'll get the comments uh, that follow on from that. And you feel a responsibility on behalf of that person who you've persuaded to to talk about something that's quite sensitive. And what they may not be ready for is what is a minority, but it's a very vocal minority via social media saying what they think about it.
2: And also the international boundaries that have broken down, haven't they, Mark? I mean, I interviewed someone a couple of months ago about um, the food bank and people struggling to put food on the table for their children in the Shamruni area of Cardiff. And the person who was the volunteer helping with the food um, was quite nervous on television, but, but said, yes, you do an interview. And he said, we have people who are warming up tins of cat food on the radiator. Now, that was the headline that was chosen by our colleagues on the online desk. And in no time, that was in the Daily Mail. And then it went international as well. And I think as far as Argentina, went all over the place. And, you know, to be honest, I felt terrible because I'd warned that, that man, that volunteer, that it would be on... Uh, BBC Wales in a number of different ways and might go on the BBC in other ways I had no idea that it would take off like that and you know that is something we would never even have had to begin to contemplate or find ourselves in you know well actually only probably five years ago no, ten And, I, years
3: ago. and I, I think that reach is great isn't it and you reach a whole audience you wouldn't otherwise have reached, but it comes with consequences yeah. and responsibilities
2: yeah massive responsibilities I think you know, I mean, and then then you need to be so much more careful about the headline that attracts the audience, because you really have to think about the longer term implications for the people, ultimately, who you're talking to.
0: There's a lot of media aggregation as well, isn't there? Sort of other papers or other news sites basically taking verbatim stories that other people have written. Do you think we've gone too far to have a guard against something like that, Mark? Or do you think it's sort of inevitability of our online media space? I think
3: uh, there is a certain inevitability about about it. I mean, what I find frustrating, and I'm I'm a a bit of a Twitter addict, I I admit, um, and and probably tweet more than I should as as well. But uh, the, the stories I find frustrating to read have been um, formulated constructed and entirely written via twitter in that somebody will tweet something uh, somebody will respond to it then there'll be a bit of a row and then the journalist uh, in question will write up from a sequence of tweets having never spoken to any of those individuals directly themselves and there's the story and i can see why it's done um but i find that it's it's a bit of a sort of bargain basement type journalism that you know I I think we should try and get away from because you you don't get any nuance, you don't get any depth to it just by pinching however many characters are from a, a tweet they they put. It's it's easy clickbait and I can understand why it's happening and I don't know what, what you can do to prevent it, but I, I think it's not a highly desirable
0: outcome. It, it it is the clicks though, isn't it, Sarah? It's that sort of revenue model that so much of online journalism is now based upon. I mean, is there anything that can be done?
2: Well, we didn't have the click ages ago, did we? No. Uh, we did have the headlines that sold the papers. So the Suns doctor gotcha and the Suns one with Neil Kinnock, who were the last person to switch off the light before a general election, they weren't clickbait in the same way. It's a different world. But in a way, that was a similar trend. You know, they were they wanting to sell papers. Now people are wanting to sell the clicks to get the advert. It's not that different, different, but I think as we've become more diverse as a nation and more divided in a and sort of more widespread in views and ways we listen and everything, then you are going to get some polarization. And that's happening all around the world, isn't it?
0: I mean, one of the things in Wales that's, that's mentioned a lot when you talk about the media is that the mainstream media, quote unquote, mainstream media, has had a historically poor approach to tackling Wales and Welsh issues. But how would you describe it, Mark?
3: Uh, Patrick, uh, I think, Uh, and I've seen it go through all sorts of waves. When Sarah and I started in in journalism in in Wales, quite a few of the papers had Wales correspondence, a couple of broadsheets and the tabloids as well. And and that was way before devolution when big decisions were being made and most of the decisions were still being made from Westminster, but they were covering good old-fashioned news, uh, and then that became a bit unfashionable, and papers made cuts, and then there was a time when there were, well, I'm not sure that any of the papers, traditional papers, have correspondence based in Wales now, and there was a time when I was working, um, covering network news about Wales to a UK audience, and there was just a small team of us working for the BBC based in Wales, and I don't think of that. For a few years, there wasn't anybody else. Uh, What I think has been a brilliant addition in recent years is Channel 4. I think we've got a great team, uh, uh, just the three of them, but they're a fantastic um, team reporting on Wales. To a UK audience and we've seen in in the last year or so as well, ITV and Sky also having Wales uh, based correspondents, LBC, which, you know, for many years was just based in London now has a setup uh, and, and reporters reporting from Wales. So I think that has been a big bonus. Obviously, the print industry has been particularly challenged and Wales Online does a, does a valiant job to for the most part I think in, in trying to tell the story of Wales but it certainly needs to be healthier there definitely need to be more journalists in Wales reporting on Wales the only caveat I would uh, add to that is that I think we can get sometimes too obsessed about whether the ownership of that such an organisation should be in Wales because sometimes and I speak slightly buy it in a biased manner here, but sometimes as working on behalf of um, an organisation that's looking further, you know, from a wider perspective at Wales. So I was reporting on for most of my career on Welsh issues, but with a UK context, you could sometimes stand back and see the wood for the trees. You can't, you're not entirely sucked in necessarily to the perhaps what is an echo chamber within uh welsh media and political circles so i think there's a balance to be struck i don't think it sh- needs all to be entirely based within wales and i think there's certain value for people coming from outside or certainly reporting to uh, bosses from outside to put that in a wider context
2: I, I agree you know i remember the financial times had their own person in wales in the old days and so did pa and and people like that and that's clearly changed I think it would be dangerous, though, if if in Wales we became victimy and sort of got, all, oh, are they not interested in us, they don't care about us, because that would actually help us. And it's great to hear from Mark, you know, of teams like Channel 4's team here and things like that, you know, that's good. All I can say from my point of view is when I have the time, which wasn't always, to get on the phone ahead... And say to the desks in London, "Hey, look, I've got this great story, and this is why it's relevant to you. And when I had the time to do a version for a UK audience because we can't expect them to know you know the difference between bridge end and ton of handy, let's say, then it actually worked, and they were receptive. but whether you know we have the time to do that and just like different cut version and, and tell them a week ahead is, is another thing.
3: I mean just to, just to roll back a few years. Quite a few years, actually. I remember uh, ringing a Five Live producer about a particular story in Wales and they said, well, we can't put you in the four hour because we've got another story from Wales in that hour. Um, and now that is going back quite a few years. It was at a time when we thought, well, we've done our Welsh hit between four and five. You'll have to come back at 5.27 and squeeze your way on. Now, I do think that's changed. Um, and certainly my latter years, um, working for Five Live and Ready For as well, there wasn't that attitude, well, we've done Wales and we'll have to wait a bit till we get round to it, uh, to, to it again.
2: And in fact, if you, there's a couple of stories which actually have had, I don't know, certainly significant coverage across the UK, perhaps more coverage, and no, not more, but have had a lot of coverage in the UK that have been Welsh stories. One is the Welsh Government's decision not to widen the M4 and not to build new roads. And secondly, the impact of the Future Generations Act. And both of those stories actually do get played out quite a lot in in the UK media, considering they're not necessarily at the top of the roads one was for a bit. But, you know, things like the Future Generations uh, Act aren't often in bulletins in Wales.
3: And and the one thing that made a huge change was was Covid and, and lockdown, because suddenly all UK um, uh, newsmakers had to look at the differences between the four nations, and they were stark differences at times. I mean, they were mind-blowing differences at times, whether you could meet three or five people in the park uh, or whatever. Uh, I mean, it was some of the toughest um, interviews that, that I've ever done on, a, uh, on the Breakfast Program trying to explain what the difference is between what you could do in Swansea and what you could do in Scunthorpe. But what it did do was raise the profile of devolution. It certainly raised the profile of Mark Drakeford who let's be honest had very little recognition well to some degree within Wales at that point but certainly uh, outside Wales and suddenly his profile rocketed so did the role of the Welsh government and the and the the differences so I think that had an enormous impact on um, how UK audiences and certainly UK newspapers saw Wales. I think the big test is now does that slip back again? Because obviously we're not seeing that on a daily or weekly basis anymore. To what extent is the genie out of the bottle or, or do we go back to, to what we had before?
2: And even within Wales, I think it reminded some people that we have a Welsh government that has powers in parts of our lives, which I think some people, if they're not in the political bubble or the media bubble, certainly you know most of my neighbours wouldn't necessarily have realised that they had the influence and power and then they began to... So that in terms of spelling out what devolution means, I agree, COVID did that probably more than anything
1: else. I think we do the mainstream media disservice. I think they were really interested in Banay Brachinog yesterday. <laughs> well, that's oh, for, yeah, that's for see- sure, yes. Yeah. Well,
3: it's I mean, and sometimes got- sometimes the coverage is based on outrage. I mean, let's be honest, and there was certainly a degree of, of that yesterday. Um I mean, there's the old adage that, you know, there's no such thing as bad news. Uh, so, uh, I mean, in terms of the, the people who brought about that sort of whole advertising campaign and the the, the, the the relaunch of it, they're probably pretty delighted. I would have thought about the level of coverage, maybe not the tone of it all, but certainly in terms of the profile, they they couldn't have bought that, really.
1: Moving away from the mainstream UK media, so our podcast, Here Heroife, was born out of our perceived thinking that, greater civic engagement and information within Wales was needed. Where do you see homegrown Welsh media, what we've got, and what do you see as the future for that media?
2: I think, to be honest, the first part of what you say, I totally agree with, that we need need to communicate more within Wales. And I think there isn't much kind of conversation going on about the kind of Wales that we want to be, and there's very different and varied groups who want their particular view of Wales, you know? And wouldn't it be great if everyone could come together? But whether that's the media's role in these times and whether the media that is something the media would even want to do, I'm not sure. Over to you, Mark. Uh
3: well, I mean, I think what we are seeing to some degree is a greater emphasis within Wales and, and elsewhere for a sort of hyperlocal coverage. So in some ways, we're we're rolling back to the days when I started outside that funeral in in Ponta in that you know that was hyper local news I like to think I was a sort of trailblazer for it perhaps I and mean, we maybe we come back full circle so there's a degree where that is happening uh, I think local television didn't Really wasn't really a huge success uh, story. I think what we we certainly lost from the days when I started and Sarah started in journalism, when uh, I, mean, I used to go to council meetings and, and sit through umpteen council meetings and pretend I knew what was going on. A colleague of mine, actually on the Echo, once voted in, in a council meeting, he stuck his hand up to see if they counted it, and they
0: did. <laughs> yes. it
3: but I don't think it was a hugely important uh, decision that he cast a vote on. But um, you don't get too much of that now, although. Um, council meetings are online so uh, I mean I've worked with a number of student journalists in recent months and they are starting to watch those council meetings online so I think that's that's good and that's a, that's a re-engagement but there is definitely I think generationally there's a change in how much people are engaging uh, with democracy and 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 you know they need to vote or or not we do see these attempts to get people to, you know, vote early um, or vote in supermarkets or whatever. I am I mean, you know, that's laudable. I'm, I'm not sure that's the answer. I think you've got to get people interested before you just make it easier for them to vote. And it's all about that engagement That's the key thing.
2: I think the sense of community, what is a community is really different as well. So whereas before it was more geographical community, I think people really care about their communities, but they're much less geographic than they were. So we have communities on Facebook, obviously we have communities according to interest and different things like that. We have people actively political, but often in organizations that aren't the traditional organizations. So we have people in different kind of protest groups or lobby groups. and, And that makes it a very different world in terms of information and where people get their information from, where they share it and where they have their debates. And the media, The mainstream media needs to be nimble and flexible with that, I think, and not just to be the obvious people.
3: And as well, I think it's it's relating to people what politics is, because people think politics is a certain subject matter, whereas in fact politics pervades everything. I mean, I was giving a, a talking to some student journalists a couple of weeks ago, and, and giving the example of um, say a number of swimming pools were leisure centre swimming pools were, were closed down. Why were they closed down? Because they were trying to save on their um, their heating bills and their, their energy bills. And why were they doing that? Well, because of the argument about whether they're getting enough help and whether there's enough of a cap on those bills. So all that has a political theme running through it and I think it's trying to as as media get people to engage with that and uh, understand that all that leads eventually to the ballot box.
0: Mark whilst we're on Welsh politics obviously we I think we take for granted the fact that following Covid we're a much more engaged polity but how would you describe the sort of mindset of the average Welsh person between 99 and 20 early 2020. Do you think we were a more engaged polity than when you started at the BBC for example?
3: Uh I'm not I I don't think we were any more engaged then than now to be honest. I I, I, I go back to the, the argument I think there is a generational shift and I'm not sure that's necessarily to do with with the media as such, it's just um, changes in lifestyles and how people um, get their information. Um, but I mean, I, I think back to when I uh, was doing Vox Pops ahead of the nineteen seven referendum, and I said to one guy, what do you think about the idea of an assembly? And he said, oh, it doesn't affect me, mate. I'm from Newport. You know, I'm not saying he was an acid test <laughs> of everyone's view, but... The idea that we were highly engaged in '99 and we aren't now, I think what well, isn't correct and certainly far too uh, simplistic. and you know let's be honest, also we only got through with a squeak uh, anyway. and we've seen a huge shift in attitude since in terms of uh, whether devolution is here to stay or not. I mean patent patently. Is. Um, so I, I think it's more, as I say, of a generational uh, change uh, than anything else as to how we get people involved in what matters in, in Wales, I, I, I don't think it's changed dramatically. I mean, one, one obviously the common theme in Wales is a Labour government uh, in terms of devolution. And that hasn't changed. I mean, in fact, 99 is when they were probably the most wobbly because that's when Plaid Cymru had their, their high watermark. And it is difficult still now, what, 23 years on, to see a government that doesn't involve Labour leading it. Um, so in terms of Compare that to Westminster, where after a certain period of time, you do have a sort of complete change of, of government and people suddenly become dramatically aware of it. In Wales, there is much more of a constant theme for good and for evil, depending on your, uh, you know, your, your particular viewpoint.
2: I think it's more the mechanism of the, for me, it's more the mechanism of the politics. You know, I think people are engaged in, you know, the practicalities of politics you know we see campaigns about hospitals and about schools and things like that and and people young people in their shopping habits are political with a little p they will boycott certain things and support other things and organizations like you know the land workers alliance for Extinction rebellion are getting quite a lot of following and then there's lots of other organizations as well so i think i think that you know when there is an issue like us like you were saying mark a, a swimming pool closing or or something directly affecting them, or wider values, if they like. We are a nation that is as political as before, but we don't necessarily see that through the lens of parties in the way that in the past, or parties and unions and those kind of organisations that were sort of the central to the debate 20 years ago. But I don't think it would be fair to suggest that people are less interested in the outcomes of politics.
0: Well, let's talk about big P politics and the political parties Um, are either of you able to sort of give your sort of impressions of the major political parties in Wales at the moment? How do you think they're performing?
3: Uh, I think that's known as a hospital pass, potentially. But, um... <laughs> How many of those
2: could we do? I'll give one back to you.
3: No, <laughs> I'm, I'm higher up the waiting list for the hospital pass, and Sarah, as it, it, it would seem. Um, well, I mean, I'll, I'll, um, I'll, I'll give my sort of um, diplomatic assessment, perhaps. Uh, Please, um, I mean, well, I was referring to the, the, earlier there to the fact that it's difficult to see a government in Wales that doesn't have Labour part certainly as part of it and 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 leading it really and. Whatever you think about the Labour Party in Wales, it is a remarkable survivor. Uh, and you compare it to the Labour Party in Scotland, which went through a very different process, albeit now is hoping to have a bit of a comeback, partly because of its like difficulties that are slightly subdued to see at the moment within the SNP. But you know that that sort of um, an of the moment uh, shift, I think. But the, yeah, the Labour Party has managed to um however it's done it to stay at the forefront and as the key the leading political party in wales and um and then you look at the other parties. You know, Is it because there's a lack of a sufficient challenge or is it something that's just inbred in the, in, in a majority of uh, voters within Wales? Well, you've applied Cymru. I mean, they did have that surprise result in 99. Since then, they've been, well, let's be honest, a mid, mid-table team, you know, hoping to get, a, well, n- not getting a Champions League place, maybe hoping to squeak a Europa Cup place perhaps. But they've often underperformed uh, when it looked as though they, they were going to, make some sort of uh, breakthrough. The Conservatives have that core support that they can rely on. And there was a time, remember, uh, it was the end of the Thatcher era when they didn't have any any um, MPs in Wales? Well, they still, however they'll do the next general election, you'll think they'll cling on to a few. So they've managed to tap into that core support. I think what will be interesting to see how the Conservatives in Wales now evolve. Um, Certainly, how they fight the general election is you look at, for instance, the Twitter feed of Andrew R. T. Davis, which has taken um, a bit of a turn in terms of its approach. Um, it is certainly pretty up an atom, I think uh, we could say that. Uh, now, is that going to be the style of their campaigning? Um, or will they try to um, revert back to sort of the one nation Tory approach? And then the Lib Dems, well, um, I mean, they've had a pretty torrid last however many years now. And um, I think, you know, we talk about are they ever, will they make a, a comeback? Proportional representation such as it is uh, within Wales should benefit them. But they've really been bumping along for quite a few years uh, uh, of late. And I mean, the other thing, having just come back from New Zealand, I always find quite interesting there, although there are still two main political parties, the Greens have quite a following. Uh, within New Zealand, um, and yet in Wales they never make that breakthrough, apart from in in recent council elections. Uh, so, you know, will the Greens ever manage to 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 get into the into the Senate and 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 make some sort of headway? Obviously, part of the issues is currently, at least, there are only sixty of them. So. You wonder whether uh, an eventual increase, if it comes in the Senate, will uh, diversify the number of the, the level of political representation or, or simply amplify it among those parties that already have members.
2: I mean, I broadly agree with you, there, Mark. Um, but one thing I think we need to re- recognise is that the, the Labour Party in Wales has changed an awful lot. And the, the Labour Party and the policies of Mark Draper and Julie James are very different from Colin Jones and Ken Skates particularly in economics, it's been a really big change. If you think it wasn't very long ago that it was all about growing GDP, growing wealth, gross, growth, you know, big com- get big companies in. And that really is not the agenda of Mark Drakeford, Lee Waters and Julie James, is it? You know, the whole thing about foundation economy, the whole thing about circular economy, uh, having Wales, having its own energy company, you know, that would not have happened a few years ago. So even though they're still called Labour, and I'm sure they're all friends and hug like each other, it's a very different complexion. And if you look at the size of the budget of the climate change department, it's massive because basically they moved half of the economy in there. Don't tell Vaughan guessing, But he knows that. You know, so I think we have a very different Labour now than before. And perhaps that's why the green vote is pretty weak in Wales. In fact, funny, funnily enough, other than the part of Monmouthshire that I'm in at the moment, uh, where there is a green councillor, um, then You know, apart from that, perhaps the Greenies, if you like, as they would have been seen by some people, are represented more by a part of the Labour Party in Wales than would they would find in England.
0: For those people who are listening to the pod rather than watching us on YouTube, you've just seen Kerry Davis hit his head on the desk about five times. The uh, slight electoral underperformance of the Green Party there, but I'll let him in for the next question.
1: I, I think you find my local performance in European and uh, council elections has made Cate's a marginal seat for Labour, Matthew. Um, Sarah, you mentioned the economy there, and that's something I wanted to pick up on. You know, your background is economics, and you said you love it, and I think um, it's something we share on the pod, but it, it, and it is quite important. You know, have you got any thoughts on the Welsh economy over the past 20 years and where we are now? You touched on it at the end there, about where the budget's going, but yeah. where do you think we are?
2: Well, it's dramatically changed, hasn't it? You know, we were talking about when Mark and I started. And quite frankly, when I started, it was all about carbon. It was about coal. It was about steel. It was about tin plate and it was about heavy engineering. And, um, you know, carbon was good and that was the strength of our economy and things like that. And obviously that tailed off. And then we attracted in the making of microwaves and things like that. Um When now, just in a space of 20 years, the whole focus is on decarbonizing everything. And I think it's often underrepresented um, in the media. There we are, I said I wasn't gonna talk about media, but Um, hey-ho, the level and the speed of that and how much the private sector is really driving that. When you've got big companies like Unilever saying we are determined to decarbonize and reach net zero really quickly, then if you're making a plastic yogurt pot for them in Ronva, let's say, you've got to really change what you make or you won't have a job anymore. You won't have someone to sell to. But at the same time, that's a really scary mistake because if Unilever are crazy and the world doesn't go around that way and they go down, then you are too. So in Wales, our economy has always been global, hasn't it? If you think, where did the coal go around the world? The transformation in the last 20 years for me has been phenomenal from this carbon centered to now massive decarbonization. And if you look at the latest stories the floating offshore wind, for instance, things like that, you know, they have a real potential to completely change our economy and create a whole load of new jobs. But even if they don't, everyone is decarbonizing. I went to a conference recently in the city of London run by one of the top accountants, and it was full of people saying, Big, big investors with you know billion pound investments. We're not putting our money into high carbon or even carbon centred projects anymore. We're not doing that because customers won't have it. So, for instance, bringing it right back to home, Tata. At the moment, Volvo is buying its steel from a particular company that it, that can produce green steel, steel not emitting carbon. If Tata doesn't decarbonise and it really wants to, it just needs a steer from the UK government, they'll lose their customers because people won't want what they call dirty steel. So it's not about someone's ideology, how green they are or what, the you know, it is changing. And for Wales, there's a real opportunity if we leap to that, which is why I gave up a nice staff job in the BBC to try and make a difference, try and do something practical, if you like, there's real opportunities there. But if we sit on our hands and go, I'm not sure, perhaps this is all a bit overrated. I'm sure something will happen. It's not as bad as people are saying. Then the danger is that we will lose thousands and thousands of jobs because the world won't want our products. And I think there's a real wake-up call and we're not hearing that enough really. But you know, the South Wales Industrial Cluster, they did some work with some fantastic experts on this. And the numbers of jobs that Wales could lose if we don't decarbonise is really something that, well, certainly focused my brain.
1: I think those changes you summed up from the the carbon-rich industry of the 80s to where we are now is indeed very different. Mark, you've overseen a lot of those changes as well. You mentioned the miners' strike and that kind of industrial action, which we're seeing a similar kind of industrial action now. But... What what has your thoughts been on the Welsh economy you've reported on? I I regularly heard you on Radio 5 uh, talk around the big ticket items like the Giga factory, which could have been in Bridgend and things like that. But is Wales with devolution really delivering on those kind of economic needs we have?
3: Well, I mean, clearly, uh, Sarah's uh, studied the, the Welsh economy far more closely uh, than I have, or well, she's paid to, but well, possibly uh, why, but uh, added an extra expertise as well. But I mean, you, you mentioned the, uh, the miners' strike, and, you know, Sarah and I are not that old. Um, uh, she's a bit older than me, but the, um, you know, when we started, the, I, if I remember rightly, the end of the miners' strike, there were 28 pits still open. And at that point, that seemed quite a low number. I mean, you know, it sounds farcical now to talk about only 28 pits being left, and it and and it does. As Sarah was talking about decarbonisation, there. I mean, you know, what a complete shift in everyday approach to what heavy industry should or, or shouldn't be. Um, I mean, it's a big and a mighty challenge, isn't there, for the Port Albert steelworks in the future, and and how that modernises and and. Hopefully, clings on. Um, I mean, what I've always been conscious of covering the Welsh economy for a UK audience was trying to stress, um, certainly on a, on budget day, how certain policies had different impacts within Wales. You know, when there was the debate about the um the top rate of income tax going to forty five percent. I mean, Sarah, remember than me, what the actual figure of how many forty-five percent or, or top-rate taxpayers there tiny, are? Well, tiny, tiny. Yes, <laughs> um, and and when I was broadcasting to a UK audience a UK, I, I was always conscious of the fact that I had to sort of stress, well, actually, here in Wales, it won't make that much different. And there's the huge public sector uh, workforce in Wales, of course, who whose uh, pay is decided by the Welsh government. So that's what I was always conscious of—that it was a very different. Welsh economy to the UK economy as a whole it had very you know certain similarities with parts of of England and parts of Scotland parts of Northern Ireland but in terms of national comparisons I, I was always conscious I'd to mm. uh, point that out and the one thing I always sort of when I go back to Pontypool for instance where I'm from I always sort of dream that someone comes in with a Ideally, a a great benefactor, an entrepreneur, somebody with a sort of huge imaginative, creative mind who can help transform those areas. Because I've I've been to parts of the north of England where you see old mills that have been turned into great art centres or or whatever. And it does need a bit of dosh. Uh, It also needs a, a bit of creativity and imagination. And, you know, I haven't got, well, any of them, really, but... If we can just tap into that, and, and I think it will help generate those souls, particularly in the South Wales Valleys and parts of North Wales that have been through industrial change to try and sort of breathe new life into those communities.
0: So obviously you've both now left the BBC. What does life feel like post-BBC? And do you found, do you feel you have like a, a new sense of freedom, or do the sort of lessons you learned from working at the BBC stay with you as journalists? Sarah?
2: I think, you know, I went into this because I left the BBC and went into this because I wanted to have more impact. And when I was out doing stories, it was more and more clear that quite often change wasn't happening because people were scared of the change or there were all sorts of nonsense barriers in the way. And I just thought, you know, if only I can use these skills to help get over those, that'll be better for people, for Wales, for community. And um, the more I do it, the more I realise that there's a
3: lot of work to do. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Mark.
3: Uh, yeah. Well, I'm. I'm still. Well, I'm now a freelance broadcaster, uh, journalist, lecturer, and 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 the plumbing's not so clever. But you know, I'm trying to have a develop a bit of a, a portfolio. Um, I mean, I don't know whether Sarah has experienced this a, a little bit. But I remember uh, some weeks ago going to a social gathering and I was sort of eavesdropping as much as my bad hearing would allow, and. You realise how people define themselves by what they do, by the job they do. I am, um, I do this, and then people say, oh, really? And there's a bit of an exchange, and that's how they define who they are, their personalities. And I thought, well, I can't say I, I was there, <laughs> I was this. I was once famous, you know? I thought there's a sort of cultural personality shift in that that you have to adapt to. And I think that that's probably, must be true, surely, across all professions and people take, taking, uh, as I did, redundancy. And suddenly there's there's life change after so many years, and particularly when you work with the BBC and you do become slightly institutionalised. Um, but I've uh, been lecturing with some younger people uh, with some students and journalism students of uh, in recent months and that's been quite rewarding passing on whatever tips I can uh, remember uh, and and trying also to learn see it through their eyes now as they start off uh, in a new world of, of media and, and journalism and picking up tips uh, from them uh, as well uh, I mean it is, it's quite hard still to switch off from the daily grind of news and social media makes that more difficult because you know, I still get the alerts about you know some incident. and think, oh, I better dash over to the car. And I think, no, I've given the car back. I can't do that. And then perhaps ask my wife if she can just interview me in the morning about whatever the day, the day's <laughs> developments are. Um, I am looking into a, a project. Uh, it's very early stages at the moment about some sort of bike business, cycling business. So you know, you could say I'm comp- I might contribute to a circular economy on that on that uh, a ba- <laughs> very basic level. Um, but it's it's. Scary and uh, refreshing at the same time. Uh, I mean, I'm sure Sarah's, you know, having all these suddenly. uh, It's almost like having a sort of tapas delivered to you, rather than having a sort of uh, uh, two veg and and basic meal. Suddenly, you've got all these little options you can go for. It's a question of not ordering too much and getting too stuff full. I guess
2: it's funny you talk about food because actually, as it happens, quite a bit of the work I'm doing at the moment is about food, partly because. Greenhouse gas emissions of the food sector have actually gone up since 1990, whereas other parts have gone down. That's the sort of science bit on the side. But um what I'm trying to do, I'm designing, trying to change the food system so that our schools, because of course there's going to be a lot more children having school dinner, so that our schools can have more more food that's grown here in Wales, and to try and change uh, the food system in Wales for all of us, so that we're not importing so much stuff from across Europe and other parts of the world and we can grow more of it here and as someone with my own polytunnel and some carrots in the soil um I find that really exciting because if we can create jobs and feed our kids well and and be healthier and not have that thing of empty shelves of no Spanish tomatoes in January then that'd be good eh?
1: I just wanted to pick up on that around the circular economy and your future you've reported in that and uh, for my sins, I do some work with Repair Café Cymru and, uh, you know, sustainable development and the circular economy is is the future. Mm. Where do you think we are in Wales on that? We we talk a lot that the, the Wellbeing of Future Generation Act is a great piece of legislation if utilised well. But mm. are we really walking the walk yet? Because I, I struggle. A lot of the stuff I do, which is similar to you, we're not quite there. You know, Mark mentioned swimming pools earlier. And I tried to get solar panels on swimming pools in Cardiff and I won't, because it might come back. But we were told we couldn't do it. And it, that stuff yeah. like that seems so simple to me. Yeah. Where do you think me well, we are?
2: Well, you see, that's exactly it, Kerry. That's what I mean by the barriers that made me say, right, I'm going to stop moaning about this, stop walking around with my husband going, this is crazy. Oh, and stop getting cross in newsrooms because I was try- frustrated by, you know, some of these crazy things where things aren't joined up and thought, right, well, I'll do what I can to join them up. I think the thing is, I think it comes down to fear. You know, a lot of individuals and a lot of organisations are really scared of changing. And so when you do have the big kind of change in focus um, that, you know, we've been talking about in different ways in the economy, then there are going to be people that resist. And that, you know, yes, we have, you know, why, for instance, you could say, why aren't all new homes told they have to have PV on the roof and they have to have, I mean, there are some restrictions already, but you know, in a the non-democracy, <laughs> there would be less tolerance of the speed of the slow speed of change. But we are a democracy, thank God. But there's there are going to be those problems. And I think we just have to to keep pushing really and keep showing that there are other ways around of doing this. And um, because there is good stuff too, isn't there? Mercer Town Football Club has got uh, photovoltaic all around um uh, the, the the stands, which is actually put in by a Welsh cooperative. And there's a, there's a kind of win-win there. And like repair cafes, it's fantastic what repair cafes are doing in terms of stuff not being chucked away, but they need to be rewarded, don't they, for the carbon they're saving. And we haven't quite worked that out yet. So there's a long way to go. But that's where I think the big boys and girls in the city might be really useful. Because if they were a bit more imaginative about their carbon offsetting and instead of just thinking they're going to stick a whole load of pine trees on a hillside that isn't conducive to pine trees. If they offset their carbon, for instance, in people who are saving waste in other ways, whether it's food waste or repair cafes, and they felt that the world loved them more for doing that because their brand and the way they're perceived is important to them and the money flew in that way then I think we will start to see change and then it will roll quite quickly. To be honest, some of the change, I'm surprised at how quickly it's gone. I mean, the, the no roads building went further than I expected uh, and the Welsh Energy Company went, was came quicker than I thought it would. I know it's still only baby steps. So I think that change is coming. I did in, last year, I did a course at Cambridge University on circular economy. And one of the great things, was, some of it was very technical, but... One of the great things that it got us doing was just thinking about how much waste there is, how much we all waste money. Crazy things like our cars are not used for 97% of the time that we have them. So we pay, you know, however much a month to have a decent car and we're just not using that money. And I think once people begin to realise the waste that they are doing, you know, in their own way by not, you know, having a washing machine where you have to get a new washing machine when the handle comes off. I mean, how crazy is that, you know? Once people really begin to realise that and that roller coasters, that's when we can get real change.
3: Can I jump in on the washing machine there? Because Mm -hmm. I'm sitting a short distance from my own washing machine, which broke 11 years ago. Uh, There was a hole punctured in it. And we were told how to get a new one in the drum. Had to get a whole new washing machine. And a builder friend said, oh, you know, try and mend it yourself. I googled it. And I found the type of glue. uh, It was basically the size of a 10 pence piece. I put a blob of glue on it. Mm-hmm. Repaired it and it's been going for the last eleven years. 11... I've, cursed, I've cursed it now, it'll go, it'll break down tomorrow. But but
2: that's amazing, Mark. Look at the carbon you saved if you yes. compared maybe you chucked it away. And actually in Europe now, all products that are being designed have to be made in such a way that they can be repaired. And we have great examples of that in Wales that we should be celebrating more. Like Orange Box, their office chairs um are totally dismantle and can be repaired and put back, whereas normal office chairs if one of the wheels goes or the handle goes, the whole thing's chat. So there is good stuff there. And I think those of us that don't like waste and, you know, I'm half Scots and we're brought up to not waste a, not waste the top of the leaks or anything, um, then, you know, those of us that never like waste, now is the time to really push because A, it can save people money and B, it can help the planet.
0: I've got one last question before we go. We were talking before just a bit about the BBC, and we're all big fans of the BBC here at Ereith Towers, but what do you think about the future of this bastion of British broadcasting? You know, we've had so many conversations in recent years about the the sustainability of its funding model, um, about its impartiality, about how it uh, survives in this very much more diverse media landscape. Do you think it can survive the 21st century, Mark? Um, I, I hope
3: so. I grew up uh, watching and listening to the uh, BBC and I spent you know, the biggest chunk of my career in its employment and I still anticipate um, doing some freelance work for the BBC. So uh, you'll have to caveat that as to what I will say about the future of the BBC. I will be slightly more careful than if I thought they would never employ me again. Uh, but uh, I mean, clearly the license fee was invented, uh, was designed for a different era and so much has changed in the intervening years and particularly in the last decade, but what is a better option, Um, and I think uh, to to say scrap the license fee and let it survive uh, on its own means, um, we would not see the BBC as it is. we have seen currently, we're seeing cuts within English local radio, and I can see the argument that is being made for that in terms of focusing uh, money on, on digital platforms. What I... I think the concern is, is what that says uh, about older audiences of those people who depend on local radio um, as a companion, as an important source of uh, information. So I think the BBC um, does have to be careful how it changes its sense of uh, direction and doesn't um, doesn't uh, penalize uh, more traditional older viewers and and listeners uh, in that um, inevitable and necessary chase to engage a younger audience. And and the other challenge as well with the younger audiences at the moment, not enough of them are consuming BBC, Or if they are, they're not necessarily paying the license fee. Um, So how sustainable does that become in the long run? So you've got to keep the core audience on board. I mean, I would not want to be BBC manager trying to sort that out. The BBC doesn't help itself from time to time, and it gets involved in these controversies and wrangles and BBC management, I think by their own admission, don't always handle these issues uh, particularly well. And Sarah and I will both over the years have been on various... Uh, online courses uh, to learn the mistakes that somebody else made um, higher up, uh, and we all have to pay a price for it. But the BBC continues to evolve, perhaps not quickly enough. There are huge challenges ahead, but I think for you know, an organisation that can still have David Attenborough and um, a whole range of edgy comedians, and there's and it admittedly, is a platform, they've now bought on iPlayer was Australian. Uh, sitcom series I've been watching called um, Colin from Accounts, but on a BBC platform, and yet you still have all this digital um, uh, media that the BBC is now putting a lot of effort into. So it's a huge range of services that the BBC is having to uh, provide, more than ever before, with greater challenges than ever before, but I think it's something that we uh, penalise at our peril. It's something that we still should cherish.
2: I mean, I agree. I think, you know, the BBC has huge attraction in certain areas. And, you know, the licence fee means that obviously uh, the people running the BBC have to prove to government that they are necessary and attracting a wide audience and that kind of thing. And the BBC does still, and is recognised around the world where they are doing phenomenal stuff, like Mark said, you know, like like David Attenborough, but also a lot of, of lighter things that people absolutely love and, you know, really good quality, I think we need to, news is slightly different. And I wonder if there's a dilemma there about how many clicks or do it quicker or verifiable. And you'll notice that quite often Sky will beat the BBC to a story while the BBC is still getting it verified from another source or, or whatever. But that caution is, of course, important because of its reputation. So, news if news is going to try to appeal to everybody it's got quite a challenge there I think and I think they're trying to try and appeal to everybody across all their pieces but the BBC as a an organization that is trusted and does really high quality broadcasting I think will continue but the license fee is obviously the really difficult thing and then I think sometimes stories are chosen for how many people will click on it, rather than necessarily the journalistic um, content. And then the dilemma is, will they lose audience who really want news? And does that matter?
3: On that point, I I mean, increasingly all news organisations, including the BBC, are looking at what uh, questions people are searching, what are the Googling, and they're trying to tap into that. Uh, What are the trends? What's trending? So what sort of news uh, are are people asking about? So you tailor your platform towards that. And that's all very laudable, um, particularly in terms of getting younger audiences. But I think you have to balance that with um, newsmakers shouldn't just uh, follow, they should lead. And that you should tell people when things are important, even if they don't think they're necessarily interested in it um, or they become interested in it. And I remember when I um, started my stint covering uh, the Brexit debate in Westminster, there was a feeling among some bigwigs that the audience weren't really that bothered or interested. And yet look what unfolded. I mean, it was the most mad 18 months of, of my career in terms of the daily drama uh, of that whole Brexit debate. I mean, I always felt that we should tell them anyway, even if they didn't seem to be interested, because it had would have a huge impact on uh, all our lives. And yet, as it turned out, it was a story that everyone, um, well, virtually everyone became fascinated in uh, because you know, the, the idea of what's this ever going to be resolved? And that is a debate that that continues to this day. So I, I, I think it's important to follow what people are asking about, what is trending, what are getting the hits, and I don't think we should ignore that, but equally we should have the confidence in our own journalism to, to set an agenda as well as follow one.
0: I just want to say thank you so much to both of you for coming on the show this evening. If people want to hear more from you, where can they find you on Twitter? Sarah?
2: I'm Sarah Dickens on Twitter. Sarah underscore Dickens.
0: Uh, and I'm Mark Hutchings, one. Uh, there's no underscore. Wonderful. Thank <laughs> you very much again uh, for coming on the show. If you've enjoyed what you've heard this evening, please don't forget to find Here Ith on the socials at Here I've Pod or go to our website, www.walespolitics.com. And thank you so much for supporting us with your ears. But if you would like to do so with your wallet, you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash Here Pod. Thank you for listening to Hiraith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.